This podcast was recorded at Grace Point Church of Orville. For more information, visit us online at orogracepoint.com. The opening act of this story is creation. It's fundamental to the story of the Bible, and it's a good place to start, right? In the beginning. That seems like a reasonable place to kick things off. Scripture opens with those very words, in the beginning God created. That sets the stage for everything else that we're going to read, everything else that we're going to experience. It creates a framework that helps us keep things in bounds. Now when I read this statement in Genesis, in the beginning God created. I find it striking for several reasons. To start with, I find it striking for what it's not. It's not an attempt to prove God's existence. It's not a philosophical argument. It's not a debate. It just assumes God exists and this is what God did. That's a really good reminder. We don't begin with arguments. We don't begin with complicated philosophical discussions. We simply begin with the acceptance. God exists. God's doing something. So what's God up to? Now, if a person says, well, I don't believe in God, okay, that's your choice. But we take it on faith. I know that there are people, there's actually a whole industry built around trying to prove the existence of God. But you just can't prove the existence of God. The Bible opens up with this declaration, in the beginning, God created. doesn't take a lot of time to discuss where God came from. In fact, it takes no time at all. It doesn't say. doesn't give us any background on God. doesn't give us God's genealogy. God is just there creating. And that is the second striking thing for me in this opening line. What is God up to? Punishing people. No, he's creating. He's forming something new. Something that heretofore didn't exist. God gets involved. Something new comes out of the process. So the very first act of God in the very first act of the big story is to create. As the first few chapters of Genesis unfold, we read a lot about what God is creating. But it's important to notice here that we don't get the mechanics of how God's doing it. The story in Genesis is not a science lesson. It doesn't say exactly how God made light. It just says, and God said, let there be light, and there's light. So if we're not given the mechanics, what's the point? Why are we getting this story if not to tell us how it happened? Well, we're getting it because... The Bible's interested in the why. Why is there something? Not how it came to be, as if we would understand if God really explained some complicated, crazy science lesson. So Genesis, this opening act of creation, the concern here is religious. It's a concern about why, not a concern about how. And it's important to grasp this because people who take it as the how then get backed into all kinds of corners trying to figure out when the world was created, 
when that's not what the Bible's doing. So some people read the Bible and try to argue that the world's only something like 6,000 years old. Then on the other hand, we have science that says, well, the universe is something like 13.75 billion years. I think the world's like four and a half billion or something. People go, aha, well, who's right, the Bible or science? And that's a really bad mess to get hung up in because it's a category confusion. The Bible's not trying to tell us how old the earth is. The Bible's trying to help us understand why the earth is here. That's the important question. You can understand all the mechanics of the car, but if you don't understand that it's for driving, what's the point? The Bible's interested in the why. It's interested in helping us understand who God is, what God is up to, and how we fit into that larger story. So it's not a science lesson. And in fact, I would argue it's the people who don't take the Bible seriously that try to turn it into all kinds of other things. In the beginning, God created. That's the bottom line. That sets the stage. As this act begins to unfold, the first character that we meet in this story is God. God's the primary character. God's the one driving the entire story. And there are a few things that we can see based on just watching what God is doing. Notice in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, we don't get a bullet point list about God. We just get a story of God doing some things. Now, we can make a few observations about that. I would caution us not to flatten them down and say, okay, this is the, you know, the final word on God. It doesn't really work like that. But there are some things that we can note. First of all, God is creating, but God himself doesn't seem to be created. God is just there. God is uncreated. God's relationship to creation is also something that we begin to see how these two things work together. And what we notice is they're distinct. God is different than creation. And this is important because sometimes people think, well, you know, the rocks are God and the trees are God. No, God is the one who is creating these things. So God and creation are separate. But God has ultimate sovereignty over creation. If you compare the Genesis story with other stories in the ancient Near East, there are some striking differences. Most of the stories in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, involve battles between gods or God fighting with nature, having to overcome nature to assert uh, supremacy. In the Bible, that's not the storyline. God creates nature. And there doesn't seem to be a conflict. There's no sense that somehow nature's going to overwhelm God, it's going to take over God. No, God is creating, and He's got it in hand. There's no cosmic battle here. It's pretty straightforward. Now, this world that God creates belongs to God. It's a creation that's intentional. And again, some of these things you might think, well, these are really basic observations. We know all of this stuff. Strangely enough, forgetting some of these details can lead to some really weird ideas. For example, in the ancient world, around the time in the New Testament or shortly thereafter, there was a rather popular belief called Gnosticism. And it still exists today in various forms. 
The basic idea was that the physical was bad. It's your spirit that has to get liberated. There are actually two different gods. There's an evil god that created matter and imprisoned people, and then there's a good god that Jesus came from to help them escape. So some of these people actually describe Jesus in terms much like we would think of like an avatar, like Jesus comes from the spirit world to liberate us from our physical bodies. Now, some of the stuff sounds strange, but if you listen to the way that people talk, some of these ideas are still present in some of the things that they're saying and thinking. This type of thinking only works if you forget the original story. Skipping over Genesis gets us into all kinds of trouble. Creation is ordered and brought about by God. The writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 3, says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is a faith claim. It's not something you can prove. Nobody was there in the beginning with God to see this. So again, if you're hoping in this lesson today there's going to be some slam-dunk proof of God's existence, I'm sorry. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who his writings I really enjoy in thinking about creation. I have a couple quotes today from him. This is what he says regarding creation. Against the conception of the world as something just there, the Bible insists that the world is creation. Over all being stands the words, let there be, and there was, and there is. Genesis, and this opening act of God's story, reminds us that things are not just there because. That behind it all, behind creation, behind the sun, the stars, the moon, there is a God who brought these things into existence. When you read the story of God creating, another thing that stands out to me is really, really fascinating is when God creates after each act, when you read Genesis chapter 1, he steps back to observe what he's created and pronounces some judgment. And from our perspective, or at least my perspective, if I was there at the beginning watching all this stuff unfold and I had to describe it, you know, I would really try to find some fantastic vocabulary words. It's sublime. It's awesome. It's amazing. I love the BBC nature things. You know, they go down into the ocean and you see some bizarre, wild little creatures flying. Or, you know, they're not flying, I guess, because they're in the water. They look like they're flying. These little bug or fish or whatever kind of copiopods or some weird name for these things spin around and then they shoot out these little packets of fluorescent light to distract predators, like flares and airplanes to shoot out to distract missiles. When I see that kind of stuff, I think, wow, amazing. When you look at the biblical description, it's kind of wild because God, he creates all this stuff and when he steps back, God doesn't say, awesome. God says, it's good. It's good. It's very good. Goodness is what God sees when he looks at creation. Not wow, not wild, not isn't that strange, but when God looks at creation, the world that he's made, 
humanity that he's created, God's judgment is, this is good. And again, we're going to talk about human rebellion and all of that stuff, but it's important to ground our view of the world, our view of one another, with the understanding that God created all things good, not bad. So to these ideas that, well, you know, our goal is to escape our bodies. You've forgotten the opening act of creation. God created human bodies and said they're good. The ultimate goal is not to one day escape. When we look at creation, we look around us, God created all of these things. They belong to God. The psalmist in 24 and 1 says, The Lord's is the earth and its fullness, the world and the dwellers within it. Creation belongs to God. It's God's water, it's God's air, it's God's sun. The animals belong to God. Life belongs to God. That's the opening line. That's how I need to think about things. It's not my stuff. We draw nice little boundaries and say, well, this is where our country is and we own this. And No, this is God's planet. And God has never forgotten creation. These declarations in Genesis, even though humans are going to have problems, humans are going to rebel, humans are going to fight with God, I would challenge you today, search the Scripture. There is no place that God ever revokes His designation that creation is good. And there's never a place in Scripture where God says, okay, fine, I'm giving up responsibility and ownership for this stuff. You guys can have it. Some people have taught that the devil, when he got kicked out of heaven, assumed control of the earth. This world does not belong to the devil. It doesn't belong to governments. It belongs to God. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, his takeaway from Psalm 24 is beautiful. He says, the world is not derelict. It is the Lord's. That's a good old-fashioned word, derelict. Abandoned. Just cast aside. That's not our world. When we get to redemption and Jesus, the reason any of that takes place is because God has not abandoned the world. If God had abandoned the world, given up on creation, why on earth would Jesus come? Doesn't make any sense at all. Now, this creation, it's not static. It's constantly in motion. God didn't create for six physical days and then stop. When you read the biblical witness, God is constantly involved in creation. God is at work in our world. God's at work in human lives. It, creation was not a one-off thing way back in the distant past. We read about God speaking the world into existence, but then God continues to work. Even in the life and ministry of Jesus, you see creation at work. What do you think healing is about? Forgiveness of sins, redemption, these are all parts of creation. God says, let there be light. Let the water swarm. Let the earth bring forth living creatures and puts in motion a process of creation. There's a theologian at Georgetown, uh, really good stuff he writes, uh, John Hott is his name. He says, he describes nature like this. 
He says, nature is not a fixed set of things suspended indefinitely in space, but a narrative unfolding in time. Creation is not stuck. It's ongoing. It's full of possibilities. It's full of becoming, which is an important part of God's story. God's story is one that's in motion. God's story is one that's constantly about becoming and creating something new. So Genesis opens up this first chapter for us by declaring in the beginning, God. And then it goes on to describe how God begins to create the world, the cosmos. And it's a good creation. Then in verse 27, something really interesting happens in this story of creation. This is how Genesis records it. So God created the human in His own image. This marks a really fascinating shift in the story. Because for the first time in this story, you have someone who's aware of the story other than God. What does it mean to say humans are created in the image and likeness of God? One key part of that is that humans are aware of the story. What separates you from your dog is you recognize there's some bigger story. They've done all kinds of studies, for example, with dogs and their memories. hate to tell you this, but dogs, it seems, only have uh, a certain type of memory. They don't have what we call episodic memory. They can't tell you what happened last Thursday. They can learn behaviors. They learn to associate your car with the fact that you're now home. So they'll start howling and barking, at least mine do, start going totally bananas when my truck pulls in. But they don't know that I came home yesterday. They're not aware of this larger story. Other animals, dolphins are brilliant. Some kinds of uh, animals, it seems like, can recognize themselves in mirrors. Animal psychologists do all of these interesting experiments with animals to find out if they're conscious, if they're aware. Animals can suffer, but it seems humans alone are aware of the fact that there was a last Thursday and there's going to be another Thursday. So humans are now in this story and because of their awareness of the story, they get a unique role. They're called to be partners with God. This is why we're able to be fifth act actors and not just stage props, not just part of the scenery. We're aware of the story. So now we are called not to just stand there, but to participate in the story. This is the other part of what it means to be in the image and the likeness of God. Both awareness of the story, but also the fact that now we're called to be partners, to reflect God's character, God's image, God's likeness into the story. But humans are not divine. They're not God. They're this strange mixture of divine breath and earthly dust. And it creates for an interesting creature. Again, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel says, man is a duality of mysterious grandeur and pompous aridity, a vision of God and a mountain of dust. It is because of his being dust that his iniquities may be forgiven, and it is because of his being an image that his righteousness is expected. 
See, those two interplaying things. Because of the divine breath, because of the fact that we're in His image, there's an expectation. Your expectations for the dog should be pretty minimal. They should learn some things, but you can't get upset that the dog didn't cook you dinner and turn the lights on because it knew you were coming home. No, it's minimal. Humans, there's an expectation that we have to act in a certain way because we're in the image of God. For us, within the story of creation, there are expectations that God doesn't have for the rest of creation. We are partners. Now, one way to diagram these expectations, you can draw a couple of axes lines. One, on this vertical line, if you think about going upward, humans have a responsibility to God. Because we carry God's image, God expects us not to ruin that. Again, think about the parent-child relationship. Go out to eat. What do the parents say? Do not embarrass me. Behave yourself. Because you know if the little kid's going totally bonkers in the restaurant, what are people going to say? Where are that kid's parents? If we are in the image and the likeness of God, there's a responsibility to reflect that, uh, to honor that image, to honor that likeness. Now, there's also a responsibility to other human beings. Because from the beginning, God makes it clear, humans, it's not good that they exist alone. Humans are social creatures. They're meant to be in community with one another. And that means there's a responsibility. Because I'm aware of the fact that we're in community, I have to then be accountable for what I do with that. I'm not like a tree. I don't know that trees have any awareness at all, but I I don't think they have any awareness that there are other trees. And when they grow, they're not growing, oh, well, I should only drink so much water because that tree there needs some water as well doesn't work like that. Uh, Birds, if you have chickens, they don't wait patiently for one to eat and then the next to eat. They just dive in. Humans, however, in this story, from the beginning are made aware of the fact you have responsibilities for one another. You're not in this on your own. See how these begin to shape the way that we read Scripture. When you recognize we're in this together, The idea that Jesus died for my sins doesn't make sense anymore. He died for our sins. The church is not an individual. It's a group of people. So again, I I know I'm maybe belaboring this a little bit, but these basic observations that come to us in the opening of the story are crucial to keep in mind. When I'm reading Scripture, when I'm thinking about church and people and God and family, I have responsibilities. Now, there's also, uh, if you want an arrow maybe pointing downward, humans are given responsibility for creation. That they're supposed to be stewards of the created works of God. Humans did not create the world, but God puts them in a garden and sets them to work, to take care of it. According to Scripture, in the beginning... The good creation was one in which we're working. Work is not bad. The ultimate goal is not to just 
achieve my eternal status on, in the recliner chair or something like that. No, there's something in my hand that God wants me to take care of, to shepherd, to work with. Now, there's also a fourth arrow that kind of loops back. The Bible teaches that we're responsible for us as well. And you see this in the opening story of creation where humans are called to attend to their own self-needs. You don't get a free pass. Well, I'm doing the Lord's work, so the Lord will just have to take care of me. No, you need to make sure you eat and go to sleep and you can't you know, smoke crack and while I'm doing the Lord's work, it's not going to have any impact on me. No, you're part of creation. You're part of the story. So taking care of you is important. The story of the Bible is not minimize me. It's put me in the proper relationship. And again, you might laugh, but there are some really strange theologies where people think that God is happy in proportion to how miserable I am. That's not what makes God happy. If God creates the human, says it's good, it's okay to enjoy food, to enjoy the company of other people, to celebrate life. And Christianity at various times and places has got a bad rap because people have forgotten some of these things and thought, well, the path to honoring God is to renounce all things in the world. Well, you forget that God created the world and put all things into your hands. So if you're renouncing all things in the world, all I'm going to eat now is just plain oatmeal with water. That's it. No more. Because I don't want to get distracted. In some sense, you are rejecting God's plan. Because God didn't create Adam in a desert with bread and water. And said, just sit there and try not to use up any oxygen. Just breathe as little as possible. No, that's not the creation story. What we see then in this opening chapter, this opening act of God's drama, the creation of all things, the creation of humanity, is that God's trajectory is one of life. Now, often when we think about what is God up to, that's not our first response. If you were to ask people today, what is God's purpose? What is God's plan? Most of the time, people will say, well, to save people. Now, that's important, but it's not the big plot line. It's a subplot. How do I know that? Because there's nothing in this opening of Genesis Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the descriptions of creation that says God created the world to save it. Now, when things go awry, because God is still present, because God is still at work, God will work to redeem and renew and restore. But we have to make sure that we don't confuse subplots with the main plot. Sin is not the story of the Bible. Life is the story of the Bible. My mistake is not the big story. The big story is God created all of this stuff. And God continues to create. And God continues to unfold new and exciting things in the world. 
Now, because of the way that things unfold, sometimes stuff gets off track and God has to bring it back. God has to renew something. God has to restore something. But that's not the same as saying the big story is solving some problem. I mentioned this several weeks ago. It's an interesting question to think about. What is God up to when he's not fixing problems? It seems like it could be a full-time job just fixing problems. But can I suggest, when you read this opening of the story, the big story, you realize God's actually up to more than that. God's not, his whole calendar, whatever God uses, I suspect it's probably not Microsoft Outlook, but whatever it is that, that God uses to schedule his day, it's not just fixing problems. There's more to it than that. And that's really really important because otherwise church, worship, praying, Bible reading, all of these things, if we're not careful, can get locked into, well, this is about solving problems. That's important. That's a key portion of what happens. When we come to church, God is going to renew and restore. But that's not all He has for us. God's goal for your life is not just to fix your problems. It's to create something new. Something beautiful, something good. Now, in order to do that, yes, sometimes you have to fix some problems. Let's bring it back to, again, the parent-child relationship. I'd imagine if you're doing your job right and you have normal kids, at some point in time, you're going to have to discipline them. Now, what if somebody told you, well, the whole point of parenting is to discipline your children? You would hopefully respond, well, no, that's part of it. But you didn't have kids just so you could beat them once a week, whether they needed it or not. You didn't have kids because you needed somebody to discipline. There's a bigger picture there. And again, if your kids are normal kids, they're going to get off track. But your job as a parent is not to straighten your kids out. That's one of your tasks, but there's a bigger picture. Likewise, when it comes to the Scripture, God's primary purpose is not straightening people out. In the beginning, God created. God created the world. God created nature. God created humans. He said, this is good. In fact, when He looks at humans, He says, this is very good. That's what we have to keep in mind. When we think about God, my first default is God's the creator, not God's the punisher, God's the fixer, God's the redeemer. All of these things are important, but we meet God as the one who creates, as the one who is bringing something new into existence. John Hutt, the guy I quoted earlier, describes it like this. He says, Life is the story of a divinely inspired struggle by creation to realize something of great and everlasting consequence. The transformation of the universe and human existence along with it into the dwelling place of the incarnate God. God is creating something beautiful. So beautiful, we only see bits and pieces of it. We can't yet get our mind fully around what God is up to in our universe. We can catch glimpses. 
whether it's in a nature documentary deep down under the sea, images from the Hubble Space Telescope, or a one-year-old's birthday party. We catch little glimpses that God is up to something amazing. And what I want to challenge us in this opening lesson, well, I mean, we already had an introduction, but chapter one of the great story is to keep in mind the fact that God is up to something amazing. Don't get bogged down in all the subplots, in the detours, in the places where I went off script. Me going off script doesn't change God's big plan. And the big plan is something amazing is going on. When I get up in the morning, I need to have front and center in my consciousness, God the Creator is unfolding something amazing. He's not done. We haven't seen it all. He hasn't finished. It's not static. God's not just way back in the past somewhere, and now everything's messed up, and He's got to figure out how to get it back on track. Things are on track. How do you know? Because God's the one that's running the show. You and I were running it, then we might question how on track things are. But we don't need to worry about that. Well, what about this catastrophe? And what about this problem? God can handle that. Just let them, though, be within this larger flow. What's God up to with my family? Something amazing. God's not just fixing the problems in my family. He's creating a beautiful future for my family. Those are two different perspectives. We as Christians are called to declare the goodness of God. That God is not out to get us. Jesus did not come to save us from God. You've forgotten this story. I mean, I've heard people get up and pray that they're so glad that Jesus is shielding us from God because God would just kill us if Jesus wasn't shielding us. Like, what God are you talking about? Yes, God disciplines His children, but read the Bible. God's not out to get people. Uh, Jesus comes to reveal to us the fact that God has been on our side from the beginning. We are called to bear witness to the fact that God is great and glorious and amazing, and we see all of this in the opening chapters of Scripture. It's not like you have to plow through 50 pages to get to the good stuff. It's not like you have to deal with problems and deal with sin and deal with this, and then you get to the goodness. The very opening of the text calls us to recognize God's creating something amazing. What's my role in that? What's my place in that ongoing story? This, my friends, is the biblical story. It's not some side story. It's front and center. That's what I want to reclaim. That's what I want to challenge us to think about. Let that permeate our consciousness. Why do you go to church? Because God's creating something amazing. And I want to be a part of it. Think about how different that is from a lot of excuses people give. Why do you pray? Because God's creating something amazing. And I'm called to participate in that. Well, you don't look too amazing. That's okay. God's amazing. And I get to be part of it. And I've got some stuff to work on. But I'm not the main story. My problem is not the main story. Your problem is not the main story. God is up to something amazing. Let's celebrate that. Let's rejoice in that. So that's how 
Act 1 begins. Creation. And it frames and it creates for us the plot line as the story unfolds. So when we get to Act 2, this is Genesis 3, or if you want, Romans 5. When we get to the next act, we have to keep this one in mind. When we get to humans doing crazy things, we have to realize the plot trajectory has already been established. Remember last week I talked about the fact you can't just jump to something totally disconnected. This is what's going to ground us in the story of Israel, in the story of humanity, in the story of the church. It's this opening impulse that we see in the Scripture. Thank you for listening. Our podcasts are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. To hear more, visit us online at orogracepoint.com.